So, after that, I'm going to start with a question, or at least I'm going to try to start with a question. And I want you to think about this. Here's the question. What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Now, if you were to ask 10 different Christians that same question, you might come out with 10 different answers. And some of them may be biblical-ish, and others not so much. That's a word I just made up. Feel free to share it amongst your friends. The predominant answer that a lot of people would give is the kingdom of God is heaven itself. They would immediately move towards pearly gates and streets of gold and angelic choirs and mansions in the sky, all of that. The next most common idea that is given is the kingdom of God is Jesus's church that is on earth at this point. And I'll say that's a little bit more biblical. And what you'll find today as we study the word is there's absolutely an incorporation of the local church within the kingdom of God, but it's more than just the local church. It, it also expands out to different denominations and, and different mission organizations and different things all around the world. Now, I've noticed over the years that Christians are more comfortable talking about the church than they are talking about the kingdom. And I get that. I get it because the church seems tangible. You can show up at a building. You can see the people. You, you're a part of the different ministries. There's some type of parameter that is around it. I understand that. And whether it's right or wrong, we also take some of our identity from the church that we're a part of. We are Sherwood Baptist Church. There's a part of identity that is found in that. Now, theologically, we all realize that the church is not a building, it is the people of God. And we get that, we understand that. And practically, we're usually a lot more comfortable defining what the church is. Now, if you're wondering what is a basic definition of a church, here it is, that is, the local church is a regular gathering of God's people who are living in biblical community, pursuing the person and the mission of Christ, submitting to God and his word, and practicing the sacraments. That's a basic understanding of the church. Now, I've noticed over the years when I'm talking to believers that we often talk church, church, church. And Jesus talked kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Did you know that Jesus specifically mentions the church three times in the Gospels? He mentions the kingdom 106 times. In the Gospels. We understand that there's a significant piece that Jesus places on the kingdom itself. And for just a moment, I want to walk you through in rapid fashion. It is going to be rapid fashion. I want to walk you through the way he builds the kingdom just in the Gospel of Matthew alone. So if you would, go with me in your Bibles right now to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. As you're finding your place in the text, let me say that I'm going to give a number of these references. I'll work all the way down. All of them are coming out of the Gospel of Matthew. So if you like to take notes, just go through and you can write the reference off to the side, just the numbers, and just know they're all coming out of the Gospel of Matthew. But here's the way Jesus built this idea of the kingdom. That is, the first words of the first message Jesus ever preached are found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. They are, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Six verses later, down in verse 23, Jesus says, 
he was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Move three verses into Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount at this point. And in verse number 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A few verses later, in verse number 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He talks about the kingdom twice in verse number 19. He brings it up again in verse number 20. He does it again in chapter 6, verse 10. Also in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, he's talking to people who are anxious about the necessities of daily life. And here's what he says. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He did not say seek first the church. He did not say seek first yourselves. He did not say seek first the approval of others. He said seek first his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is so specific in his Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, that that particular message has been referred to as the constitution of the kingdom. We're going to come back to that. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus mentions people who think they're in the kingdom, but they're actually not. Then in chapter 8, verse 11, he describes the diversity of his kingdom. Then in chapter 10, verse 7, he sends his disciples out and he instructs them, as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then you go into chapter 13, and he clarifies points of confusion that are connected to the kingdom. He gives eight parables specific to the kingdom itself. Then, just to make sure that all of these pieces are still fitting together, let me lump them together. And by the way, that is not all that he has to say about the kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. That's just to get things going. So let's bring it together. Here's basically what he's done. In the Gospel of Matthew, the first words of the first message he ever preached were on the kingdom. The ongoing message he declared everywhere he went was the kingdom. The focus of his premier message was the kingdom. When people were worried about the daily necessities of life, he said, seek the kingdom. He told his disciples they were to proclaim the kingdom. When people didn't understand the kingdom, he gave them eight different parables to explain it. And amongst those parables, he helps us understand the residents of the kingdom, the ruler of the kingdom, the operations of the kingdom, the values of the kingdom, as well as the expansion of the kingdom. Now, if we were to just stop right there, hopefully we can all agree that Jesus thinks the kingdom is important. Now, if the kingdom is that important to Jesus, it must be as important to us. So today, we're going to study the kingdom. We're going to ask seven questions to go deeper into our understanding of what is the kingdom? Why are we to be a part of it? And, and what we're doing is we're engaging this conversation from this perspective. The focus today is on engage the kingdom, and we're in a series right now that we're talking about how we can make Christ known. How do we make him known among the nations? The reason this message is put in this series is if we're to make him known among the nations, we will be engaged in kingdom work. It's not about our church. It's about his kingdom. I have shared that statement hundreds of times over the years. I've shared it sometimes when preaching in other churches. And it wasn't even my church, but I was going and sharing with them. It's not about a church. It's about his kingdom. 
So when the focus is on the kingdom, listen to this, it's always going to be what's best for the church. But if the focus is on the church, it's not always what's going to be best for the kingdom. We have to be about the kingdom. So that being said, hopefully your Bibles are open. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to work our way from verse 12 all the way down to verse 17. I'm giving the first several verses for context, and then we're going to focus and spend the bulk of our time in verse number 17. So here's what the text says. Now, when Jesus heard that John had taken, was taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and he settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we get into this text, we ask God that your spirit guide us into truth. Help us to settle in. Lord, help us to see the kingdom as you share the kingdom. Help us to see our place in it. Help us to see how we are to engage your kingdom activity around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse number 12, it tells us that John the Baptist is taken into custody. Now, for context, it's important to also note that Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, provides an interesting connection between John the Baptist and this idea of the kingdom. Here's what it says. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message that Jesus gave is the exact same message that John the Baptist gave. Now, it's also interesting for us to note that John is considered to be the first prophet who came after Malachi. Now, because of there being a corruption of the priesthood, because of there being issues related to temple worship, because of the fact that there was indifference to the things of God, we find that God, get this, went off the air for 400 years. It's referred to as the intertestamental period. He did not send a prophet. He did not send a message. He did not send a miracle that we see found in Scripture for 400 years. And then we have the arrival of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the first prophet that is sent since Malachi. So once we get into Matthew chapter 4, we find that John is now going to prison. Jesus withdraws to Galilee. He fulfills the prophecy that is given to Isaiah. He becomes a light to the Gentiles, to those in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Also, they were people who were sitting in darkness, and upon Christ's arrival, they were those who saw a great light. From that point, moving forward, Jesus has the same message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So with all of the focus that is given on the kingdom, I want us to take a few moments and ask seven questions about the kingdom. The first two of these are going to take the longest, but they set up the answers to the other five. So here's our first question that we're asking. Where does the kingdom fit into the activity of God? Where does the kingdom fit into the activity of God? 
Now, the subject of the kingdom is one that builds throughout Scripture. From an Old Testament perspective, people saw time in this perspective. That is, they saw it as a linear progression, a timeline. On one side was the present age. On the other side is the age to come. And right in the middle would be the arrival of Messiah. So I want you to think about it like this. According to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Elijah would come first and then announce that Messiah was going to arrive. So from that perspective, Messiah would then come and announce that the kingdom of heaven is here. So here's three initials for you to think about. E-M-K. E-M-K. Elijah, Messiah, kingdom. Elijah, Messiah, kingdom. That's the progression that people were looking for. So the starting point was Elijah's return. To this very day, the Jewish people, when they celebrate the Seder meal every single year, they often leave the front door of the house open so that Elijah can come. There's often a chair that is empty sitting at the table that is for Elijah to come and be a part of. There's a cup of wine that is poured that's on the table. It's referred to as the cup of Elijah. From a Jewish perspective, Elijah's return will usher in the messianic age and the kingdom of God is going to follow behind that. E-M-K, Elijah, Messiah, kingdom. That's the progression. So when John the Baptist shows up on the scene, some people started taking note. They're thinking, man, this guy sounds like one of the prophets of old. So here's what happened in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. It says, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you, here it is, Elijah? Remember, they're, they're waiting for Elijah. EMK, Elijah, Messiah, kingdom. And he said, I am not. And they said to him, well, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet declared. Now they're trying to figure him out. They recognize this guy is a prophet. How, how does he fit into God's timeline? And they couldn't fully understand it. And for that matter, John did not fully understand where he fit into God's overall plan. So he simply refers to himself as one who is crying in the wilderness. Now listen to what Jesus says about John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hold on now, hold on. Now we know the Bible does not teach reincarnation. So how can John the Baptist be Elijah? How does that fit? Well, did you all know that the angel who spoke to Zacharias, John the Baptist's dad before his birth, gives us the answer. Here's what it says, Luke chapter 1. Do not be afraid, Zacharias. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And it will be he who will go as a forerunner before him. Here it is. In the spirit and the power of Elijah. John would be like Elijah. He would be characterized as having the spirit and the power of Elijah. He was a prophet like Elijah. He had a holy boldness about him, just like Elijah 
So according to Jesus, the messianic timetable has now started when John the Baptist was here and he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. E-M-K happened. That is, John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Messiah arrived and the kingdom has now come. That leads into our second question. What is the kingdom of God? Now, if you take it that the kingdom has come, then the next question is, well, what actually came? What is the kingdom of God? Now, I'm going to give you several different definitions, but I think it is through the collective group of these that we can begin to see how they help us understand the basic idea of the kingdom of God. The most simplistic definition is from the Greek word for kingdom itself. It simply means rule, realm, or reign. Now, that makes sense. Now, the concise Oxford Dictionary kind of takes a little bit further. That is, the kingdom of God is the spiritual reign or authority of God. That makes sense. Now, here's a definition that I've given a number of times over the years. It's from Vance Pittman from Hope Church there in Las Vegas. Without a doubt, I believe Vance Pittman is probably the greatest kingdom preacher I've ever heard. I have heard a lot of messages on the kingdom throughout the course of my life. I have never heard somebody who can cast a vision for the kingdom better than what Vance can. But here is the definition that he provides. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign activity in the world, resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign activity in the world, resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. I'm going to give you one more definition to put on here. It's from Dallas Willard, one of the great Christian thinkers of our time. He said, the kingdom is the range of God's effective will, where what he wants done is done. All right, now, I know I just gave you a lot of information, so let's kind of begin to break some of this down a little bit, especially that phrase, effective will. That is, everybody has a will, and you got an effective will. Your will might be that you're a multimillionaire. Your effective will is you're going to get up and go to work tomorrow. <laughs> okay, you know what I'm saying? That, that is our effective will is where we can influence the outcome, where we can influence the change. Now, when he talks about this being the range of God's effective will, we understand that God is completely sovereign. He is all-powerful. He, he exists under the auspices of his own authority. He needs no one or nothing. He, he is God. He is completely sovereign. So if you're talking about his effective will, how does that make sense? The area here is the fact that God has chosen to veil a part of his sovereignty in order to work through his people. He is no less sovereign, but at the same time, he is so convinced that he can accomplish his purposes He's willing to even do it through a fallen creation. So here's how we begin to work it out. When it comes to reaching the nations with the gospel, God chooses to work through his people. When it comes to serving the poor or caring for the sick or discipling the saved, God chooses to work through his people. God's effective will is the realm in which his people are expanding and extending his influence. Now, because of the fact 
that God wants people to be in right relationship with himself, representing his effective will. It includes his activity, not only through local churches and denominations, but also through mission agencies and through seminaries. The kingdom includes what he is accomplishing through mission trips and through church planting and through evangelism and through biblical counseling. It also incorporates what he does through Christians loving their neighbors and helping the poor and living as salt and light. All of this is a part of him extending his influence into the darkness of this world. It is the range of his effective will. So here's the definition that I kind of worked out with all of that included. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign activity in the world. It is God's effective will accomplishing his purposes. It's all that he does through his people to bring the nations under his authority and to bring people into right relationship with himself. I know that is a lot of information. And I told you the first two were going to be the longest. And you made it through. So here's now question number three. Why did Jesus say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That same phrase is also translated, the kingdom of heaven is near, or the kingdom of heaven has arrived, or the kingdom of heaven is here. Why would his kingdom not have been here prior to that? Answer, because the king has now come. Every kingdom has a king. And when the king has come, it's now the kingdom is here. The kingdom is near. It's right in front of you. In fact, it's what the Old Testament prophets said was going to happen. They spoke of a coming king. The angels and the magi referred to Jesus as king. The apostle Paul tells Timothy that Jesus is to be blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The kingdom is at hand because the king is here. Question number four, how do you enter the kingdom and who are the residents? Well, both John the Baptist and Jesus gave the answer. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Humanity was created for a relationship with God. Our sin separated us from that relationship. That means that we all sinned and rebelled against God. To say it differently, we're all guilty of high treason in the courts of heaven. Repentance, though, is the act of recognizing our sin, expressing sorrow for that sin, and turning from that sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. When a person does that, when they place faith in Jesus, he gives them eternal life. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you. In other words, when a person repents by placing faith in Christ, they are now brought in right relationship with their king. And as a result of that, we are now able to live under his authority within his kingdom. Now let's go on to our next question, question number five. What does it look like to live in the kingdom? Well, that is the entire focus of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 record the Sermon on the Mount. As I shared a few moments ago, it is actually referred to as the constitution of the kingdom. So think about it like this. The Constitution of the United States is the governing document that defines life and liberty within this land. Make sense? All right. The Sermon on the Mount is the governing document 
that describes life and liberty within the kingdom. It is the constitution of the kingdom. So if you want to know how do I live in the kingdom of God, study the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And by the way, when you study the Sermon on the Mount, it will flip you upside down. Because every time you think, I'm doing really well, study the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus will say, ah, you thought that was high? My standard's higher. Over and over, he flips it upside down. So, next question. How does the kingdom expand? This is extremely important for us. The kingdom expands as God's people extend his influence. Did you know that there are areas right here in our own city that the influence and the impact of God is minimal in some areas? There's places right here. You don't have to go to the other side of the earth in order to find those places. You can find them right here. Based on research by the Joshua Project, 41.8% or 3.27 billion people in our world are considered unreached. Of the 17,406 people groups in the world, 7,402 of those are considered unreached. What does that mean? It means that they do not have the word of God in their language. They have never heard the name of Jesus. There is not a single church that we're aware of that is within that people group. Did you hear those numbers? 41.8% of our world's population has never even heard the name Jesus. Never heard the gospel. Do not have the word of God in their language. I have multiple copies of the word of God in my home and in my office. They don't even have it in their language. For the kingdom of God to expand, for the church to make him known among the nations, we are called to be salt and light. And we're called to go to the ends of the earth. We're to take the gospel with us. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. How will they call on whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? If the kingdom of God is to expand, we are called to send the messengers. We are called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Here's a question. How many of you have ever taken time to pray and ask God, God, are you calling me to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? I didn't know if I was going to share this, but it feels like the right time, so I'm going to share it anyway. When I was a kid sitting in church services, there would be a pastor and evangelist who would come in, and they would say something like this, some of you, God is calling to the mission fielder to be a pastor. And as soon as they would say it, butterflies would come up in my stomach. And my first thought was, oh, dear God, please help it not be me. <laughs> Do you know why? Because I had a plan, even as a child, of what I wanted to do with my life. And the thought of going to the ends of the earth to be a missionary, to be a pastor, it was not appealing to me. But here's what happened. 
When God got a hold of my heart, he took what I ran from and turned it into something I ran towards. I believe with all of my heart there's people sitting in the room right now that God's going to call you to the mission field. I believe the next generation of pastors could be sitting in this room right now. I believe every person sitting in this room, you're called to be salt and light to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your family, to your friends. All of that. The, listen, did you know that moment that you text a, a Bible verse to a friend of yours who might not know Jesus? Did you know you just put a little bit of kingdom in their direction? Did you know when you text that person say, I'm praying for you today because God brought you to mind in my prayer time. Did you know when you do that, you're helping that person recognize that a sovereign God is on the throne and somehow he prompted you to pray for them. Do you know what just happened? You just expanded a little bit more the kingdom in somebody else's direction. Imagine what would happen if thousands of believers woke up every day and said, God, help me to be about the kingdom. How do I engage the kingdom? God, who do you want me to talk to today? Who do you want me to write today? Who do you want me to email today? Who do you want me to call today so that your kingdom is expanded just a little bit further? That's about what it means to expand his kingdom. So we're going to finish with this last one. Does the kingdom ever end? Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 tells us that when Messiah comes, there will be no end of his government or of his kingdom. The angel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1 verse 33 that she would have a son and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. So I go back to that first phrase that I shared early on in the message. It's not about our church, it's about his kingdom. It's not about our church, it is about his kingdom. Now here's the reason I say that. If we exist only to serve our own needs, if we only budget to take care of things within the church, if we live as though the church is the end game, we've missed the bigger point that is found in the New Testament. The local church, listen, 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 the local church is temporary. The kingdom is eternal. Let, let this one just marinate in your brain for a moment. Every church that the Apostle Paul planted no longer exist. The church in Antioch no longer exist. The church in Thessalonica no longer exist. The church in Ephesus, it's gone. Watch out. Unless Jesus comes first, there might be a time, let's just say a hundred years from now, when this church might not exist. The local church is temporary. The kingdom is eternal. Now, why does that make a difference? Because if we focus all of our time on taking care of our needs and using the resources and the time in order to care for ourselves, here's what happens. Eventually, one day, if God does not come back before then, everything we just poured into will fade away. But when we seek first the kingdom, and his righteousness. We are continually investing in something that is going to outlast us. 
Revelation chapter 11, it foretells of Christ's second coming. And here's what it says. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Now let's be real practical about this. God has blessed Sherwood with some of the most amazing facilities that you're going to find anywhere. Not only in this country, but around the world. Amazing facilities. And a part of that is there's still some debt that has come with the facilities. It's still something that's being paid off. And praise God, it's being paid off aggressively. And I'm grateful for that. But did you all know, even in the fact that this church still has debt for paying off facilities, this church invests heavily in missions and church planting around the world. Now, here's the reason I bring that up. If all you're doing is talking about things from a logical financial perspective, it makes no sense to send money out there if we still have debt that we're supposed to be paying over here. But if you look at it from a kingdom perspective, it makes no sense to put all the money here when God's kingdom keeps expanding out there. You see, there's certain things that if we're to be about extending the kingdom, if we're to be about engaging the kingdom, if we're about making him known among the nations, the only way we're going to be able to move through this in a way that we're all on the same page is that we're kingdom people. It is entirely too easy to make it about us. When you make it about us, there's never enough opportunity to bring joy and satisfaction to each of us. There's always something else we can do. And if you don't think that is correct, think about everything that you're doing in your home right now. I I happen to be in the process of trying to get into a home. And here's what I can tell you. It doesn't matter how much you do, there's 50 other projects on the other side of this. Why? Because we're constantly in that position of bettering the situation that we might be in right now. And if we don't have a kingdom mentality, it's far too easy to take those same dollars and say, oh, I got this other thing I'm going to do over here. Hey, Bria, we're going to have to wait a little bit on our bass boat. (laughs) You You know what I'm saying? Because when you're in that moment when you start thinking like, hey, I could take that same money and we could do this. It's entirely too easy to keep feeding self. Engaging the kingdom and understanding the kingdom is what keeps your eyes going out to others. God has incredibly blessed this church. But here's the point. It's not about our church. It's about his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So as we close out this morning, i got a number of questions that I want to ask you. These are some kingdom probing questions. These are the kind, if you get yourself a cup of coffee tomorrow morning, feel free to go back over them again. Here's, here's a couple of them. Are you in the kingdom? There might be some people in here right now that are like, I don't know if I've taken the first step. Remember, first step, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Some of you might be in a place where you're saying, I'm not in, but I'd like to be in. You can be in today. Here's another one. How does God want to use you to expand his kingdom? Is it possible? Is it at least possible that God has called you one day to do a short-term mission trip? Is it possible 
that that neighbor that just moved in next door that you can't get out of your mind, is it possible that God keeps bringing them to mind because he wants you to go over and extend the kingdom influence to them? Is it possible that God puts you in that family because there's people in your family who do not yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Here's another one. Is God leading you to maybe be a part of expanding his kingdom in another part of the city? we got serve day coming up this upcoming Saturday. Did you know when the believers are out serving people in the community, it is expanding God's kingdom influence out? Here's another one. Where is God saying, if you'll give me this, I'll use you more? Have you ever sat with God before and he keeps bringing stuff to mind and you're like, God, I don't know if I like where this is going right now. Did you know there's certain things in our life that are not biblically or morally wrong? But listen, they'll hold you back from running the race effectively. I'll give you a great one that God used to challenge me on that. TV in and of itself is not morally wrong. There are things that are wrong that you probably should not watch, but I love watching nature programs. I, there's not a program that was created in Alaska that I've not watched 38 times. I, I like watching them. They calm me down. Don't they, though? I'm glad I'm not the only one. The moment I hear that monotone narrator's voice, I'm like, ah, I'm out. That's the reason I watch them 38 times. I've never made it through one yet. But here's the thing. Even though there's nothing wrong with watching a part of God's creation, if I go through and make that my only focus and don't engage other things in the world, something that's good can get in the way of what's best. So is there anything in your life that God might be saying, I want you to give up this because I, I want to use you more? Here's the final one. What would it look like for you to wake up tomorrow morning seeking the kingdom first in all you do. How would that change the way you live? I'm going to ask you if you would to bow your heads for just a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed. My invitation today is not going to be overly long. There's going to be pastors at the front. There's an opportunity for people today. If you need somebody to pray with you, if you're not sure as to whether or not you are a part of the kingdom of God, if you know that you have never repented of your sin by placing faith in Christ, whatever that might be, there's an opportunity for you to respond. But there might be some others in the room right now that you just need a quiet moment just between you and God just to sit and to reflect and to say, God, have I made my life about me? How am I supposed to be engaging the kingdom? Just ask those questions with God. As the worship plays in just a moment, feel free to join in. But again, some of you might need a time to just sit with God and say, God, I just need you to do a work in me. Engaging the kingdom is often going to mean that we deny self to pursue him. 
that we give up temporary security for eternal significance. That we do things that under normal circumstances do not seem logical maybe, but from a kingdom perspective, it makes all the sense in the world. Has God called you to engage the kingdom in a very specific way? If so, would you respond to him? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you would continue to do your work within us. Lord, may hearts and minds be open to your activity. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing?